0: Welcome to the sermons of Steve Galloway, pastor of First Baptist Church, Macon, Mississippi. Let us join together and study God's word and apply it to our hearts so that we may learn his truths and live faithful, obedient lives. May God bless our time together. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 John 2, verses 1 through 6. 1 John 2, 1 through 6. Allow me to read this passage. My, ch- my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments." The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has been truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him also, to walk in the same manner as he walked. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, open our hearts to the truths of your word today, guide us into this study. Lord, help us to understand that we do not have to sin, but when we do, we do have an advocate who stands before us, stands between us, and, Lord, we'll see just wonderful thing that he does for us. But, Lord, we are commanded to live in obedience to you and to love one another. And, Lord... We have the perfect example. Just as Jesus walked, so should we. Help us to understand that and to live it out in our daily lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just a little reminder, John is in his latter years. He may be one of the last people alive that actually saw Jesus walking on the face of this earth. He was actually there when Jesus parted... uh, uh, fed the multitude, when Jesus walked on water, when Jesus healed the blind man, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He was there at the foot of the cross. He watched Jesus being crucified. He saw Jesus in his resurrected body. He witnessed Jesus ascending into heaven. He may be one of the last people on the face of the earth that saw these things and actually witnessed each and every one of them. And so he uses this term, little children, Because he's actually writing this letter to second and maybe even third, maybe even fourth generation Christians. Why is this important? Because with each generation of Christianity, something typically happens. We sometimes weaken down the gospel just a little bit to make it more, quote, palatable to those around us. That happens. And also, there are false teachers in the midst of the churches. And John understands that the people need to hear the true, powerful message of the gospel so that they can stand firm in the faith. So that's why he's writing to my little children, these younger Christians in the faith. And the question is asked, do we have to sin? Now I'm not asking for a show of hands, I'm not asking for you to tell me, but how long has... You've been able to go without sinning? Think about that question. How long can you go without sinning? Hopefully, it's more than seconds, hopefully, more than minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years. The question is do we have to sin? Well, Paul addressed this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Did you understand that? We are all tempted. We are all tempted alike. Some people say, well, nobody's ever been tempted like I have. Well, yes, they have. Jesus has been tempted in the same ways that we've been tempted. Remember after he uh, passed him for 40 days and 40 nights out in the wilderness, Satan came and tempted him. And the temptations that Satan tempted him with are the same overall types of temptations that we have. And we look and we see that As we are tempted, there is no temptation that God doesn't understand, that Jesus has not already dealt with, but God is faithful, and he will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able. But with that temptation, he will make a way of escape. He will give us the ability to deal with that temptation so that we will be able to endure it. In other words, to be overcomers, to have victory over it. So the question is, can we not sin? Well, obviously, we can not sin. So, why do we sin? Well, God's given us everything that we need to keep from sinning. He's given us for the forgiveness of our sins. But too many people say, well, if God's going to forgive all my sins, past, present, and future, then What's to keep me from sinning? Because he's going to forgive me. All i got to do is confess my sins, and he is faithful and just, and he will forgive me of my sins and cleanse me of my unrighteousness. So that just gives me the freedom to sin all the more. Well, Paul addressed that, and he said, if you think that you can sin so that grace may abound, God forbid. It should shake us to our core to hear that kind of language. So why do we sin? Well, Here's the simple answer. We're children of Adam. We are born with a sin nature. And from the time that we're born, we're born sinners. But when we had that second birth, we become children of God. And we actually have two natures that are battling constantly until the day that we die and receive that perfected body that is fit for heaven, that cannot sin. So the question is, who's in control of us. Are we truly surrendered to the Lordship of Christ? Are we allowing the Holy Spirit of God, God living in us to be in control of our thoughts, our desires, our words and our deeds so that he can overcome all these temptations and he will overcome these temptations? Or do we revert back to the sons of Adam and say, you know, I just want to live my life by my desires today. And so I'm going to do what I want to do. When we have that attitude, that's where sin comes in. And so John is saying, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But when you sin, here's the answer. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That word advocate, the Greek word is parakletos. Para means parallel or going alongside of, and so this word basically means to come alongside of, and that's what Jesus does when we become a child of God, he walks alongside of us. We we read passages of scripture where we are yoked with Christ. That basically means that there's a double yoke, Jesus is in one of them, and we're in the other. If we want to veer off course, Jesus is there to guide us on that straight and narrow path of salvation, And so Jesus does walk with us. We see him doing that through his Holy Spirit. So what happens when we sin? Well, here's basically kind of a picture of probably what takes place in heaven. Did you know that Satan has access to heaven? We see that uh, throughout the Bible, especially in Revelation. There's a time when Satan and his demonic angels will be finally kicked out of heaven once and for all, but that will happen in the end time. Right now, Satan can go before the throne of God. And here's probably what took place the last time I sinned. He stood before God and said, Steve Galloway has sinned against you. He has broken your commandments. He has disobeyed your law. He deserves the exact same punishment that I have received. He deserves eternal death and the flames of hell. And to be honest, that is exactly what I deserve. But I have an advocate who pleads my case. Now, this advocate is not an attorney. Some people picture Jesus as being an attorney. An attorney tries to Work the law to bring a not guilty plea. The thing is, I am guilty. Jesus, my advocate, knows that I'm guilty and God the Father, the judge, knows that I'm guilty. So I cannot plead not guilty. I have to plead guilty. So there are no loopholes in the law of God. There's no inadmissible evidence that can be thrown out. I'm guilty. So what happens? Jesus says, I was nailed to a cross and I took upon myself Steve Galloway's sins. By grace, he's been offered salvation. By faith, he's received that salvation. And I am now his Savior and his Lord. I died in his place for the penalty of his sins. So the penalty is no longer on me for my sins, it's been placed on my advocate, Jesus. And it says that Jesus Christ is the righteous. He is the only one that could stand in our gap, to stand in our place, to die for our sins. So Jesus is the advocate. He's the only advocate. He's the only one pure and holy enough that he could take upon himself the guilt and the penalty of our sins by dying on the cross in our place. See, we cannot stand before a holy God. A lot of people think that, well, I'm a good enough person and I can probably stand before God and, and talk my way into heaven. And so they want to be their own attorney. Well, people who become their own attorneys in a court of law Here's basically what most people say. They have a fool for an attorney. And we'd be foolish to think that we could stand before a holy God and convince him that we're good enough for heaven. But Jesus stands in our place. He took our place on the cross, died for our sins. And only Jesus can stand in our place and plead our case. Well, that's not the only thing that he does. Verse 2 says, And he is the propitiation for our sins. Now, I've always had trouble saying that word. You know, It's not a word that you talk about, that you use in common language. When's the last time you actually said the word propitiation without reading it out of the scripture here? It's just not something we do. So what in the world does this word mean? Well, it's according to what, what group of people that you're dealing with. Basically, propitiation deals with a religious requirement. For many religions, Propitiation basically is what does it cost to appease the God that you worship? For many, they are giving little trinkets. They're giving food. They're giving a financial thing. Some are offering animals and things of this nature. But they are giving some type of an offering or sacrifice to appease their God. Well, if you go back into the Old Testament, basically the Jewish people were required to do just that. For their sins, a blood sacrifice had to be given. We know that on the Day of Atonement, the perfect, unblemished Lamb was sacrificed for the sins of the people. But it was always a picture of a coming sacrifice, Jesus, the Lamb of God, coming to sacrifice His life, shedding His blood for us. So in many religions, it's what man can do to try to appease their God. But in Christianity is what Jesus has done for us. He has become that ultimate sacrifice. He became the sacrifice that satisfies the requirement of God. Otherwise, we could not stand before God. Otherwise, we could not be forgiven of our sins. Otherwise, we would still be under the penalty of our sin. So man is totally incapable of satisfying God's requirements. We cannot plead our case on our own. We cannot do enough good deeds. We cannot give enough offerings and sacrifices for God to say, that's enough. That's good enough. I'm satisfied. No, only God could provide the sacrifice that would satisfy the requirements. That's why from way back in the Old Testament prophets, there was this picture of this coming Messiah. The one who would come to save man from his sins. And we know that he did come. He has come. And he gave his life. He was the ultimate, perfect sacrifice. He was the sacrifice that was satisfactory to pay the penalty for our sins. So Jesus not only pleads our case showing his nail scarred hands to say I died for them. I died in their place for their sins. But he is the ultimate, perfect sacrifice for our sins. So we need to remember that Jesus did what we could not do for ourselves. He became that sacrifice. You and I have no ability to give a great enough sacrifice. So, the next thing in verse 2 is He was the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So did Jesus, who did Jesus die for? Just for Christians, those who would come to Christ? No, he actually died for the sins of the world. So if he died for all people, why aren't all people saved? Well, some people think that they all are saved. They have this universal type of mentality. Well, if Jesus died for the sins of the world, and I'm a sinner, and I'm in the world, then he died for my sins, so I'm saved. Well, it goes a little deeper than that. We know that. Not all people are saved. Many are lost. See, the power of salvation is found in the sacrifice. Jesus is that sacrifice. He did die to be the propitiation for all the sins of the entire world, but not all will receive that. See, many people will not bow the knee many people will never call jesus lord of their lives why why aren't why isn't everyone saved well there's a lot of different reasons first there are way too many people in our world that never heard the gospel because nobody's ever gone to be the messenger to be the evangelist to be the missionary see the word of god tells us go ye therefore and make disciples to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all things that I have commanded them, and lo, I will be with you into the ends of the ages. That's what God's called us to do. We see that a question is asked, how shall they know if they do not hear? How shall they hear unless there's someone who shares the good news? And then it goes on and says, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of salvation. So, that's our responsibility to take the good news to the world around us. Now, does that mean that you and I have to go to China or Africa or some unreached people group? Not necessarily. God may call one of us to do that. But how about the world around you? Are there any lost people around you? Us, me included? Of course there are. So how do we reach them? How do they hear the news? Well, some people say, well the the gospel's been spread throughout Knoxby County, and Knoxville County, every which way it can be. It's on the radios, it's on television, there's churches on every corner. Anybody who wants to hear it can hear it. Maybe so. But lost people have no desire to hear the word of God. We need to take it to them. How do we do that? Did you know that each and every one of us is gifted and unique in different ways? There's no one size fits all that I can tell everyone to go out and do this. God's gonna use us individually to share his love with the world around us. It may be walking over to your neighbor's house that's going through a tragedy and you you bring a, a meal and you say, I know that you're going through something, I'm here to pray for you. This meal is just a, a gift of love, but the greatest thing I can do is share Christ with you and let you know that He can be in control if you allow Him to be, you can share your faith with Christ. Many ways God can open the doors for us to share His love. So many are not saved because they've never heard. Others have heard, but they've chosen to continue to be sons of Adam in control of themselves. They do not want any outside force or being to be in control of their lives. In other words, they reject the lordship of Christ. And by rejecting the lordship of Christ, they cannot be saved. Then, unfortunately, here's another group. They look at Christians and they see the hypocrisy in the many lives of proclaim Christians and they say if that's what being a Christian is all about I'll have nothing to do with it why would I want to be a part of that people bickering and gossiping and doing all sorts of evil things and claiming to be a child of God If that's what Christianity is all about forget it you do understand that we don't have the best reputation in the world as Christians too many times Christians crucify their own. When a person's done something wrong, they'll be on the bandwagon to make sure the entire community knows what they did wrong. The gossip lines just light up instead of praying for that person and ministering to their needs. Do you understand why the world around us has no desire to be a Christian? There's many other reasons, but we are God's instruments. We have the responsibility to share Christ. We need to do it through the love of Christ that lives in us and works through us. We also need to do it by setting a better example than we do. We need to show Christ in us. So verses 3 through 5 basically are asking the question, do you know that you know Him? How do you know that you know Him? By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Now we look at this and the only way that we can really know that Jesus is our Savior and Lord is to know Him. Well, wouldn't it be wonderful if the day that we became a child of God that maybe a cross was indelibly imprinted into our forehead so we would see it every time we looked in the mirror so it would be our proof positive that we're a child of God and everybody around us would say hey that man's a Christian wouldn't it be great if, if God just changed every facet of our lives and all the negative things in our lives just kind of disappeared wouldn't that be wonderful but basically the difference is found in how we live now there has to be a warning right there See, many people in our world today believe that, okay, I'm living a pretty good life. That's all that matters. God's going to let me into this heaven because I'm a good person. Well, that's not the case. The proof of really knowing Him comes after we truly believe in the saving power of Jesus Christ. It comes after we have surrendered to the Lordship of Christ. By believing, we surrender to Jesus as Lord, and then there should be evidence by how we live We ought to have the desire to obey Him. See, there's one thing to do the will of God because we feel like we are coerced to do it because it's the right thing to do, because other people are looking at us and they'll be asking questions about us if we don't do it. In other words, we're doing it because we feel like we have to. To be a true child of God, to know that we know Him, we should have a heart's desire each and every day to be obedient, To the will of God. How do we know the will of God? Well through the word of God. Read, study, meditate on the word of God. Each and every day. Pray if you are truly a child of God. The Holy Spirit is going to give you wisdom and understanding of the word that you read. But God's also going to speak to you through his spirit. And he will give you wisdom and guidance as to how you ought to live. So there really is two evidences that we know that we know him. The first is God's evidence. He sees that we are living a transformed life, that we no longer are the same person that we were before. We are now His child, and His Holy Spirit is in that continuous process of changing us into the model of Christ to follow Him, to understand how we ought to live in obedience to His command. If we truly are living out this life of faith, then there should be outward evidence of it. That's what the world should see. This outward evidence that we are living a life filled with the love of Christ, that we are living the model of Christ, that we are living according to the will of God, that we are following the word of God, that we are being obedient to God's will in our lives. When that becomes evident, the world around us should see that. So there should be the internal evidence of what God is doing, transforming us through His Spirit. There should be the outward evidence of how we are living according to the will of God. So we must know and keep His commandments. So we know that we have come to know Him. We know this by what He has done in our lives and what He is doing in our lives by transforming us. There should be no doubt that God is in us. His Holy Spirit is working through us. There should be evidence all around that we know, even if the world does not know. And then the desire should always be there to keep His commandments. Verse 4 gives us a warning. The one who says, I have come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So anybody can proclaim to be a child of God, but if we do not keep his commandments, if we don't live according to his will, if we basically say, God, I know what your will is, but don't feel like doing that. I'm going to live my own life. I want to do it my way. When we do that, God's saying, you're a liar. You're not truly one of my children. The truth is not in you. But then he picks up verse 5. But whoever keeps his word In him the love of God has been truly perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Those who keep his word have a heart's desire to live in obedience because the Holy Spirit is living in us, guiding us, convicting us, showing us the way. When we have that heart's desire to live in obedience, then we know that he is perfecting us. He's making us pure and holy in his sight and he's there to be able to use us to make an impact in the world around us. By this we will know that we are in him. And then we finish up with verse 6. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Who do you emulate in life? Who do you model your life after? You know, there's been some wonderful, godly people that have walked the face of this earth. And there's probably a lot of people who've said, I want to be like this person. But We should never emulate another person. Because the Bible gives us a very clear picture. There's only one model for a Christian to follow, and that is Christ. The one who says he abides in him, Jesus ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. How did Jesus walk perfectly? Are we capable of doing that? We'll go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13. Yes, we can overcome temptation, not on our own, but through the power of the Spirit of God living in us and through us? We can. So how do we live by modeling Christ? We do the same things he did. We show unconditional love towards all people. No matter who they are, what their status in society is, what they have done or not done that is right. Look at who Jesus ministered to. He went to a well one day. He was thirsty. He, Being a Jew should never have even spoken to the lady who was sitting there who was a Samaritan. But he asked her to draw him water. And she basically said, if you knew who I am, you would not be asking me to draw water. And Jesus said, if you knew who I am, you'd be asking me for water and I would give you water that would be everlasting. And he said, go bring your husband to me. She said, I don't have a husband. He said, you've spoken correctly. You've had several husbands, and the man that you're living with right now is not your husband. He knew all about her. Did he condemn her? Did he say, You are too filthy for me to associate with. I don't want to be around you. You need to just go on and live your life of sinfulness and go to hell. That's not what he did. He showed compassion on her. He talked to her one-on-one on her level Yes, he understood her sinfulness, but he was not condemning her for that sin. How many other ways did Jesus minister? He found a man who was demon possessed, and he cast out the demons. He healed people of their illnesses. He saw the needs constantly. He saw the hunger and the thirst physically when he was preaching on a mountain one day, and. He challenged his disciples to feed them. Oh, Philip the calculator said, Lord, there's not enough money to buy enough food for all these people. Jesus said, well, what do you have? And Andrew came up with a little boy that had some fish and some loaves of bread, probably no more than could fit in your hand. And Jesus said, that's enough. And he broke the bread and it multiplied. He fed the multitude because they were hungry and in need. How many other ways did Jesus show love and compassion to people? That's what we are to do. No, I I can't multiply bread and fish to feed 5,000 plus people. But I can have the same compassion and love and heart like Christ did. So just as he walked, we are to walk in the same manner. That's what the Bible is all about. It's not looking at others and looking down our noses at them and saying, you are not worthy of the same salvation that I have. It is saying, only by the grace of God am I not you. Only by the grace of God have I received God's gift of salvation and eternal life. And he has wiped the slate clean, but he can do the same thing for you. I am a sinner just like you are. And I have the answer to my sins. His name is Jesus. Let me introduce you to him. He died for my sins and for your sins. And he rose from the grave to give us victory over the penalty of our sins, which is death. He did that because he loves us. He is our advocate. He will stand before Almighty God in our sinfulness and stand and say, They have placed their faith in me. I am now their Savior and Lord. I died for them. I put myself on the cross and died in their place. He is the wonderful, perfect sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins. And all they have to do is say, yes, Jesus is my Savior and my Lord, and surrender their lives to Him. That's what salvation is all about. That's what John is preaching. He's overcoming all the false teachings about who Jesus is. He's pointing to Jesus left and right as being God, being at the hand of God, being our advocate in heaven beside Almighty God. Y'all do remember that when Jesus left, the Bible says that he's gone to sit at the right hand of God so he can intercede on our behalf. That is who Jesus is today. And he does it not just for you and I as Christians, but for the whole world if they will just hear the gospel and accept the drawing of salvation. When anybody comes to salvation, their sins are forgiven, their unrighteousness is cleansed, and God places his spirit in them and begins to do a transformation to change this son of Adam into a son of God this child of Adam into the child of God, and only God can do that. There's a book by Charles Sheldon, it's called In His Steps. More than likely you've read it somewhere along the way. It's been a long time since I've read it. I probably need to reread it. But he, throughout the book, he basically challenges himself to live by what verse six says. If we say that we abide in him, we should walk in the same manner as he walked. And so in this book, in his steps, the question was constantly asked, what would Jesus do? Whatever Jesus would do is what I must do. And it's our heart's desire to be obedient. So the question today is, when's the last time we've asked ourselves, am I following in the footsteps of Jesus Am I following him as my perfect model? Am I asking myself as I go through situations in life, what would Jesus do and then do that? So that's the question we must ask ourselves. When we picture Jesus as being our advocate, standing before Almighty God, because we are guilty, not pleading that we're innocent or not guilty, it should break our heart every time. That we force him to answer before Satan and defend us for our own sins it all calls us each and every day to say Lord help me not to sin don't allow me to have a heart's desire to do what is against your will may your Holy Spirit be in complete control of my thoughts my desires so that I will live a perfect and holy life today. Lord, thank you that when I have sinned and when I will sin, Jesus is my advocate. He's also the propitiation for my sins. He paid the perfect ultimate sacrifice so that I can live eternally, so that my sins can be forgiven and I can be your child. Let's bow together. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Lord, our hearts should be broken because of our sinfulness. That we can be so lax in how we live that we're constantly needing you to be our advocate. Lord, may it never be that we would have an attitude that we can sin all the more so that you can forgive us again and stand before Almighty God in our place. Lord, help us to realize that every day we have a choice to make. Are we going to live our lives according to our own flesh, being a son of Adam, a child of Adam? Or are we going to live a surrendered life, allowing your Holy Spirit to be the guiding force in everything that we think and desire, everything that we say and do, so that we can be truly a child of God? Lord, that's a choice we make every moment of every day. Help us, Lord, to choose wisely. To realize that the greatest gift is to follow you. To follow Jesus as our perfect example, our perfect model. Lord, guide us today and every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.